And we're going to be in John chapter 2, verse 13 through 25. So turn to John chapter 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Amen. Thank you, Jen. And if you would, stand with me as we pray. Father, we have received your word about your son, Jesus. And we ask now that the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who is with us now, as we are temples of the Holy Spirit, would help us understand this text, the reason for which John conveyed it to us, and the way that it translates into our lives in the 21st century. Now, we want to be, as it were, clean temples for you. And we would pray even now, before I speak anything about this text, we talk about anything about this text, we would pray now that you would begin to identify areas where there is uncleanness in your temple. Whether that is your church, us, we, your people, or the individual lives that are represented in this community at Emmaus. We want to be clean for you, God. We want to be holy for you. We want to be devoted to you. We want to be singular in our purpose and focus. So Father, I pray now that your spirit would be here to bring conviction, that your spirit would be here to bring clarity. You said that you would send the advocate, the helper, the teacher to come and teach us in your way. And so we're expecting now that by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gift of teaching and the written scriptures, that you're going to speak prophetically, profoundly, intimately, personally to our lives from this place of Scripture. So we pray that you, Father, would get honored, that your Son would be glorified, that the Spirit would be honored and not grieved, and that as we invite you to work on us and in us and with us and through us, that you would then, Father, through the Scriptures, give us the food we need to sustain us spiritually. In Jesus' name, we all said together, amen, amen, amen. You can grab a seat We are continuing our series through the Gospel of John. How many of you know we've been in the Gospel of John? 
Sometimes people that have been in Emmaus for a long time say, what book are we studying? I'm thinking, I'm doing a horrible job as a Bible teacher. You don't even know what book of the Bible we're in. We're in the book of John, and as we typically do on Sunday mornings, we just take a piece of the, the text, and we go verse by verse through it in the sense that we read through the whole text, and then we unpack it and see what God might say to us. Um, somebody asked me about our graphic for the Gospel of John. Uh, if you didn't grow up in a liturgical church, or a church that really taught you the Bible very well, um, you probably wouldn't know that uh, this symbol of the eagle actually has much to do with John's gospel. How many gospels are there? We call them the gospels. There are how many? Four. There is a scene in Ezekiel chapter 1 echoed in Revelation chapter 4 where there are these extraordinary beasts worshiping around the throne. And there is the face of an ox, there is the face of a man, the face of a lion, and the face of the eagle. And each of the four Gospels for Bible commentators and church history uh, comes from, out of church history, comes that each of the four Gospels have been given one of these four faces to represent their Gospel. And John's Gospel is the face of the eagle. Because as perhaps you're aware, one of John's main objectives in writing his Gospel is to personify Jesus as God's Son or the divine side of Jesus. So, um, therefore, our very clever, liturgically trained uh, arts team has put the eagle face. So, um, that's just a freebie for you this morning. Nothing to do with our text. Um, but we're in John chapter 2, as Jen read for us. And today we're going to see what I'm calling another side of Jesus. So, last week, um, we saw Jesus, the life of the party, make him more wine at a, at a, at a wedding feast. And bringing joy, Jesus the joy bringer, Jesus the Lord of the festival. Wasn't that good? Drinking the good wine last week, enjoying the wine of joy that comes, the celebratory spirit that should be in the church. But now in our text this morning, we see the side of Jesus where he goes into a church service, if you would, and basically kicks everybody out because of what he sees in that church service. Makes a whip. It's the, it's, it's the original whip in Nene. He came in and said, watch me whip and get all those sheep who say nay-nay out of here, right? The OG whip and nay-nay. Jesus does it here in John chapter 2. I was looking forward to saying that all week. So um, I don't care if you guys didn't laugh. That was funny. Um, <laughs> I do want to focus our attention, though, on one part of the entirety of the text that I think drives much of what happens here, and that is down in verse 17, and, and it's, this is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9, in which the disciples said when they saw what Jesus was doing, interrupting this church service and kicking everybody out, they quoted Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, Psalm 69 is a Psalm of David, if you didn't know that, and actually, it is the second most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Aside from Psalm 22, Psalm 69 gets quoted more than any other psalm. And when the disciples see what Jesus is doing, they quote this again, zeal for your house will consume me. And Psalm 69 was written by David at a time where he was being persecuted for his love and zeal for the house of God. 
I don't know if you've studied much on the life of David, but one of the earmarks of the life of King David, the shepherd boy that became the king of Israel, is that he was zealous, he was one who loved the house of God. Now, when David spoke of the house of God, it was before there was a physical temple, he was still talking, talking, referring to a tabernacle, a portable tent in which was the worship center for Israel. And several times, David throughout his life really showed his passion and zeal for the house of God. There was one time when, probably the most famous story about David, is when he killed that big old giant, Goliath of Gath. The sword of Goliath, the, the conquest of David, actually ends up in the house of God. Because later David retrieves that sword to use in battle. But there's also another instance in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where David goes to the house of Abinadab, and he retrieves the, the Ark of the Covenant that had been somewhere else. It had not been in Jerusalem. And it, with great effort, he goes to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem to be in the tabernacle for tabernacle worship because of David's heart for God. And his heart, especially for the courts of the Lord. And he was mocked and persecuted by his wife, Michael, as he was out dancing in his chonies. That's how us Mexican folks say it. We call them chonies. Um, they are BVDs. They are tidy whities whatever he was wearing. Uh, he was dancing in those things, and his wife mocked him for that. And David wrote many times in the Psalms about his love and zeal for the house of God. Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Psalm 61, verse 4, he says, I long to dwell in your tent forever. And then, of course, we come to Psalm 69, verse 9, quoted by Jesus' disciples when they saw what he did in the temple that day. The zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus was zealous for his Father's house. And John tells us as part of the historical narrative that it was the time of the Jewish Passover. How many of you are familiar with Jewish Passover? You should be the Exodus 12 event um, when God brought his people out of Egypt after 430 years of slavery. And that night, lambs were slain in every home, and blood of the lamb was applied to the house so that the death coming through Egypt would pass over. And so from that point, Exodus 12, all throughout Israel's history to present day, once a year they celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem at the time of the Jewish Passover. Now, you have to think about this for just a moment um, to set yourself in a historical context. Um, Jerusalem typically had about 80,000 people in the city. But during the time of the Passover, the population swelled to over half a million, most say. So Jerusalem at this time is packed full of pilgrim Jews that were on their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus was among that company. As every good male Jew would do, he made his way up to celebrate the three appointed feasts that the law said every Jew 
should remember and commemorate. Exodus chapter 23 says that three times a year the Lord commanded you were to celebrate a festival, festival to me, which the people would go for Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles. And, and, and there in Exodus 23, it goes on to say, three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. And so Jerusalem is packed, but people are coming from all places, all over the nation of Israel and all across the Roman Empire. Jews, male Jews primarily coming to worship and celebrate and commemorate Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they're coming and they have to offer these sacrifices, but many of them coming from long distances would not have brought sacrificial animals with them. That'd be a long journey to take the sheep and the goat and the, the ox with them. And neither did they have currency, coins that were fit for Jerusalem. And so as a service, some entrepreneurial minds uh, thought, hey, here's what we'll do. All these pilgrims coming in, we can make some bucks. We can make money by selling sacrificial animals, uh, temple-approved sacrifice animals to all the incoming pilgrims. And they're not going to have the right currency, so we'll have exchange tables. Now, that all makes sense. It was a service. Now, they upcharge, and I'm sure it's like going to Disneyland and, or Disney World or whatever, and you're, you're stuck in the, the park, and you got to eat lunch, and they've got you, right? They can charge 50 bucks for a hamburger or whatever they want. Um, and so the idea was that they would come, and they would need to buy these animals, and, and they were sort of getting ripped off. And, of course, the currency exchange rates were exorbitant. And that was all one thing, to do that out in the marketplace. But apparently what had happened is that these, these business entrepreneurs that were taking advantage of worshipers had only ripped them off in the marketplace. They had moved their business into the court of the Gentiles. That is, think about this. That'd be like if somebody was setting up shop right here and making money hand over fist while we're having worship in here this morning. They're selling stuff. They're selling communion. They're selling indulgences. They're making money off of the worshipers. And so it's into this environment that Jesus walks in and sees crude business, people being ripped off, men making big-time profits off those who had come to worship. And it's at that point that the zeal of, his, of the Father's house eats Jesus up. And we see a side of Jesus that many of us are not comfortable with. As a lot of people, when I hear them talk about Jesus, it's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's Jesus, the love guru. It's Jesus, the one who preaches love and yoga. The Jesus with daisies in his hair and drinks herbal tea. That Jesus. And, and yet, there's a whole different side to Jesus when he gets angry. He fashions a whip. He sees this crude business being done in his father's house. And he starts flipping over tables, scattering money, shooing out the, the, the business people and the animals and getting them out, whipping, driving them out, whipping the animals, driving the men, getting rid of these money changer tables. And, and, and he says, do not make my father's house a marketplace. This is, this is foolishness. Get out of here with this. And, and we see a, a different side of Jesus than perhaps many of us are comfortable with. But, but I do want to say this, that Anger is part of love. If I'm not sometimes angry in my love for others, then I'm not awake 
then I'm not actually loving. There are times when you should be angry. Now the Bible's pretty clear. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, In your anger do not sin. But anger is not always sinful. Actually, anger sometimes is the most righteous emotion that you should feel about certain things. When people are being oppressed or unjustly harmed, that should make you angry. When you see someone that you love doing things that are self-harming to them and to their family, you should be angry about people doing unhealthy things and living destructive lifestyles. When God's name is being blasphemed in some way, that should make you righteously indignant. So there would be times that your apathy would be a form of sin. When your continual form of love that says love is always airy, fairy, light, and fluffy. Love is always sweet and tender and kind. Yes, it is, and sometimes love gets angry. Now, the question then more becomes as it concerns our own righteous indignation. When we see Jesus righteously indignant, we know that uh, from my perspective of the person of Jesus, he lived a sinless life. So we know what he does here is not sinful. It was, it was the most righteous way to react to such an occasion of people making a market out of the house of God. Get out of here with that. That doesn't belong here. But the question that we need to ask ourselves, and I'm just going to give you three, as it concerns righteous versus unrighteous anger, because some of you are not prone to be angry people. They're, my wife, she doesn't get angry that much. I, I, I'm, I wouldn't call myself an angry person, but I get angrier faster than she does. Um, and so we're not talking about your predisposition towards temperament. Some of you just need self-control. But there are times when... Our anger is righteous, and, and, and to distinguish between is this righteous or unrighteous, I would just give you three particulars to ask yourself. Whenever you're angry, run it through this grid. There's probably more things that we could mention, but I'm just going to mention three for brevity this morning. Um, ask yourself, first of all, what am I angry about? I mean, if, if you have people that you talk through your anger with, and you're angry, and someone notices it, bro, what's wrong? Sister, what's wrong? Friend, what's wrong? You say, I'm angry. Well, how can you answer the question, what are you angry about? So what's making you angry? Righteous anger reacts to, now this is an important term, actual sin. Okay? Because there are times when um, we're not having an accurate perception of actual sin, true evil. Not your personal, political, and theological preferences. A lot of the anger in the church is over preferences. I'm not talking about preferences. We're talking about actual sin. And to be able to define what actual sin is, it's not anger as a reaction to your personal inconvenience. If you're, anger, if you're, ang if you're answering the question, why am I angry, what am I angry about, and it's your personal convenience, it's probably unrighteous. If you're angry because you're irritated, if you're angry because somebody contradicts your political perspective, I get it, we have opinions, but that isn't the most righteous reason to be angry. So why are you angry? What are you angry about? Number two, um, what kingdom am I angry for? God's kingdom? God's ways, God's concerns? Or my kingdom, my ways, my concerns? Is it a God-centered motive or a self-centered motive? What kingdom am I angry over? What am I angry about? Is it actual sin or just 
preferences? What kingdom am I angry for? And then finally, what words or actions am I going to take in my anger? Now, now there's where it gets big. Let's just say you have a righteous cause. I mean, take your cause. Racism. I'm angry over racism. Abortion. Taking unborn lives. I'm angry over that. Um, inequality. I'm angry over that. I'm anger over people being oppressed and, and harmed. Children being abused. There's things that make me angry. When a husband mistreats his wife, when, when a mother abuses her children, when someone is abandoned or hurt in some way, yes, I'm angry over that. But the question then becomes, if you have a righteous cause, what words or actions are you going to take in your anger? I'm going to guess that you would all agree with me that cussing someone out is probably not the best way to deal with a righteous cause. Blowing up an abortion clinic, that kind of thing. Committing uncontrolled acts of violence or uncontrolled rage, that's ungodly and sinful. Righteous anger, now listen, this is important, is accompanied by other godly virtues and qualities. So just because you're angry doesn't mean you have to lose the virtue of self-control. There's a way to meet, when God meets out his anger, it's not usually wild, uncontrolled fury or passive aggressive bitterness. When God meets out his anger, it's controlled, meted out, deliberate, and thorough. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Jesus is righteously indignant for his Father's house. He's zealous for his Father's house. Let me just ask you this question this morning. Are you zealous for God's house? Do you care about God's house? And when we say God's house, we're talking about what we call the church community. Or your own temple, you as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Are you zealous for God's house? Are you a zealous person? I think zealous has got a lot of bad marketing. When we think of zealous, we probably think of awkward, over the top, only for extroverted peoples, um, fanatical, too much. That person's zealous. But if your aim in life is to be like Jesus, then you have to reckon with the fact that Jesus was zealous for the house of his Father and the worship of those who would come. Romans chapter 12, verse 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal. There is a zeal without knowledge. We're not talking about that. Never be lacking in zeal, Romans 12, 11, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now here's a simple definition of the word zeal. Oxford Dictionary, pretty scholarly. All those Brits are real smart. Oxford Dictionary defines zeal this way. Great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. So, are you zealous? Do you have zeal for the house of your Father, God? For Jesus' church? Do you care about Jesus' church? Are you jealously, zealously passionate about what happens in the local church? And if you are someone who's awake and zealous for God's house, God's community, the church, if you're paying attention at all, then you have a reason to be angry. I don't know if you're paying attention to church trends in the United States of America, but while many places in the, in the world are experiencing what we would call revival of New Testament proportions, South America, Africa, China, God's doing great things in China, 
place all over Asia, we are experiencing in the United States, and the trends continue to experience a spiritual decline. Uh, statistics uh, will bear that out, that there in the American church, we are seeing men and women leave the church in continued large numbers. The Southern Baptist Convention studies indicate that they are losing, now listen to this, 70 to 88% of their youth after their freshman year of college. That's our future right there. The Southern Baptist Church, their, their research is showing we are losing the next generation in droves, 70 to 88%. Even on the low end, 70%, you are losing, you're losing hope that's going into the future through young men and women. George Barna, the church researcher, in his research concluded that if the current trends in the younger generation continue, listen to this, the church in America will be the half the size it is today. If we keep seeing people leave the church the way they are. There's this growing number of what we call the ex-church goers that um, in the 90s, the late 90s, they actually, um, sociologists and church, churchmen gave them a name. They call them de-churched. And the de-churched are those defined this way, those who haven't left Jesus but have left the church. And their reasons for leaving the church aren't always what you think they might be. Atheism, consumerism, selfish narcissism, sin and pursuits of other things. Um, I want to show you a video by a Christian pastor and writer named Sky Jethany who's written and spoken concerning the trend of why we're losing many, many people, why there's a growing number of the de-church. We love Jesus, we don't like the church, and, and what has happened. Uh, so I want you to watch this clip uh, from Sky Jethany, and then, and then we'll talk about it in just a sec. How do you feel about church, honestly? According to the Barna organization, one in three Americans are now officially de-churched. That's a lot of people, and you might be one of them. Many people, especially church leaders, are trying to understand why church engagement is declining. And it's easy to blame those who are leaving. People are too self-centered today, or youth sports are taking over Sunday mornings. Christian faith is under attack in the culture. Listen, I'll be the first to admit that there are all kinds of complicated factors here. Heck, I even wrote a whole book about how consumerism is impacting the way our culture thinks about faith. But we can't put all the blame on those who are leaving the church. Josh Packard is a sociologist who's researched this issue. He came to some really surprising conclusions. First, he found that a decline in church involvement was not matched by a decline in religious belief. He wrote this, People are as concerned as ever about religion and are finding religion in their daily lives. However, the trend across all age groups is to move away from church and religious institutions as the central organizing mechanism for this activity. But here's the part that might really surprise you. Packard discovered that the most spiritually mature people and those who were the most involved with church activities were also the most likely to leave the church. Based on interviews, he found that those who left the church, quote, didn't stop doing things to advance what they believed to be the work of God. They stopped doing things to advance the work of the church. Did you get that? It's totally counterintuitive. Most of us assume it's the least involved and the least mature who are most likely to drop out of the church, but it's not. It's people like, like me, those who are totally committed to Christ and who have a long history of deep involvement in the church. So what's going on? How do we explain this? Well, I want to propose that we've overlooked something really important. Rather than blaming all of this on youth sports or laziness or even Christian consumerism, we also need to look at cruise ships. 
let me begin with some history. In the first half of the 20th century, ocean liners were how most people traveled between Europe and America. We often think of the glamorous first-class passengers enjoying these floating palaces, but in truth, ocean liners served a very practical function. They moved people and cargo from point A to point B. That's why they were called liners. But the glory days of the ocean liners began to fade in 1953 when a comet roared across the Atlantic. The de Havilland Comet was the first commercial jetliner. The fastest ocean liners took about six days to cross the Atlantic, but a jet could do it in just six hours. And overnight, the vast ocean became just the pond. Many thought passenger shipping would never recover, but they were wrong because some innovative ship owners thought of a new way for their fleets to make money cruises. Rather than the practical purpose of moving people from one point to another, cruises were intended for fun, and they usually sailed in a circle, starting and ending in the same port. This fundamentally changed the purpose of the ship. Before, a ship was a, a form of transportation, but with cruises, the ship became the destination. That's why modern cruise ships dwarf the old ocean liners. They have to cram so many features on board to attract passengers. Today, megaships have parks, carousels, water slides, whatever these things are, ice skating, roller skating, bumper cars, simulated surfing, simulated skydiving, simulated families, even bowling lanes. I mean, seriously, who goes bowling on a cruise ship? All of this happened because ships went from being vehicles to being destinations. So what does all this have to do with the church? Well, like ocean liners, for centuries, churches had a simple purpose. They gathered people together and transported them into communion with God. That was it. But in the 1960s, changes in our culture started drawing young people away from the church. Baby boomers weren't that interested in connecting with God anymore. And small, simple churches just couldn't compete with the attraction of shopping malls and multiplexes and rock concerts. But some innovative pastors came along with a new idea. If people no longer felt the need to connect with God, then perhaps something else would draw them into the church. The need for community or entertainment or help with their families. In other words, rather than making the church a vehicle for connecting with God, they decided to make the church a destination in itself. They even invented a new word. We used to talk about Christians and non-Christians or believers and non-believers, but starting in the 1970s, we began talking about the unchurched. And since then, the number of megachurches has exploded while the actual number of people attending church has declined. In order to attract people, just like cruise ships, churches have had to get bigger and bigger with more and more features. We now think it's completely normal for churches to include coffee shops, bookstores, food courts, recreation centers, water parks, children's ministries packed with Xboxes and climbing walls, aquariums, and yes, there are even churches with bowling alleys. Seriously, who bowls at church? Now, don't get me wrong. This has all been done with the very best of intentions, and in some cases, those intentions actually work. I'm sure there are people who have entered a church because it has a great CrossFit program and actually found Jesus there. And that's great, but we need to remember that a huge church can survive if you don't find God there, but it can't survive if you don't fund its programs. And that brings us back to the real reason you may be uneasy about church. A lot of us aren't going to church for the climbing wall or for the laser show or the dancing fountains. We're going because we want to meet God. But over time, if we don't find him there, we give up. We're looking for a simple ocean liner to take us into communion with God but instead, we find a sea of entertaining cruise ships that sometimes don't take us anywhere at all. The Barna organization has found that the number one reason millennials go to church is to be closer to God. But it's also the number one reason they leave the church. Maybe it's time for the church to just be the church again. Maybe it doesn't have to be a rec center or a shopping mall or even a bowling alley. 
Maybe people aren't giving up on the church because our culture has moved away from God. Maybe it's because the church has. If you'd like to read more, check out my ebook, How Churches Became Cruise Ships, a survival guide for the seasick Christian. Don't forget about our weekly podcast with Phil Vischer and sign up for With God Daily, my daily devotional delivered right to your inbox every morning. Pretty compelling, no? It was the zeal for the Father's house that caused Jesus to come into a cruise ship and say, what are y'all doing? What is this? The beautiful thing is I think underneath all this where the mega churches are exploding and yet church attendance, didn't that shock you? More mega churches but less people in church total? Underneath the surface, there is a movement where God is continuing to raise up a generation of people who say, we have come to seek the face of God. We don't care if your church is cool. We don't care if your church has all the amenities and clubs and programs for every facet of my life. Do you bring people into communion with the Lord? And if our church is going to continue in health going forward, then we must recommit to the mission that Jesus has given his church. On this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. This is not a social club, ladies and gentlemen, although I'm all for socializing. We are here to simply seek the face of God and invite Jesus' zealous love into this place and say, if there is anything here that you say, get that out of here, drive that out, that doesn't belong here, then we say, have your way, God. In our church, in our lives, have your way. Now what's interesting here is as we consider and draw to a close what the church is intended to be, and and my commitment to you is this, and I'm going to have the elders continue to hold me accountable to this one simple thing. Our church community is going to steadfastly be about what the church was always about since its birth in Acts chapter 2. They steadfastly gave themselves over to practice the apostles' doctrine. They taught the scriptures. Fellowship, connection, community, not just talking about your hobbies in the lobbies, but actually connecting on a God level, a deep level. Fellowship, breaking bread, eating, drinking, the Lord's Supper. We do it every week here. And also eating and drinking in your homes, having meals together, sharing your table with one another, and committed to prayer. That's why we have said one Sunday a month, I'm not even preaching. We're going to say, oh God, we are here to commune with you. This is not a church growth program. I tell you what, I promise you this. There are people that will visit Emmaus, and if the first time they visit, they come to a prayer meeting, they will never come back again. So be it. I'm not trying to grow a mega church. Like, y'all, I'm, I'm trying to say, I'm going to stand, and you're going to stand before the one whose eyes are like fire, and he's going to say, what did you do with my gospel? What did you do with my word? What did you do with my church? And I'm going to have to say, oh, God, Drive out anything in me and in us that is, is interfering, that's, that's, that's causing worshipers not to get from point A where they were to point B where God is. Our church is to be a vehicle to get us to God and that alone. If we accomplish one thing as a church, people just get to know God. Done. 
then, then Jesus, the one whose eyes are like fire, will stand before, we will stand before him and he will say, well done, good, faithful servants. Come, enter my rest. That's all I'm living for, y'all. I don't care if you don't like it. I want you to like it, but if you don't like it and Jesus likes it, who am I going with? You or Jesus? Jesus every time. I don't care what culture's saying. So there, there, is, there is a place where, yes, we need to be missional. Yes, we need to consider people outside of the church and how to go after them. But let's not do it in some silly, stupid, seeker-friendly way. Seeker-friendly way is just simply saying, as John the Baptist did, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what's impressive to me is that this generation actually wants that. They're longing for authenticity. They're tired of the plastic shopping mall version of church. That cheap, fake, not real, not really getting down to the core issues. There's this longing for something transcendent and more. And, and we found, I found in my generation and the younger generation coming up behind me, there was this mass return to liturgical churches. The high church, back to Catholicism, back to uh, the Anglican church and the, the, the Lutheran church and the Methodist church where they could come and they would know that even though uh, you walk into a Catholic church, practically not even anyone says hi to you. You don't greet anybody. There is no community. But you stand before the God who made you and you say, oh God, to you be the glory. These church is about one thing. In, in some of those more boring liturgical churches that haven't shifted to try to be like everybody else. Now, we're not going liturgical, but there are some beauty that we, we would say, let's bring that in. Let's keep centered and focused, ladies and gentlemen. And I'll leave you with this because this is where it comes to bear on us. All of this does, but this even more, I think, I find this interesting because most of the Bible commentators I read um, commenting on John chapter two said this was actually the first time Jesus cleansed the temple. He, uh, the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record another temple cleansing. And these two don't seem to exactly jive. So the thought is that Jesus cleaned the temple the first time at the beginning of his ministry, and then he had to come do it again at the end of his ministry, which I find very interesting to think that this is how this went. Jesus goes into the temple at the beginning of his ministry and sees what's happening and goes, this is ridiculous. Get this out of here. My father's house isn't to be a marketplace. The zeal for his father's house had eaten him up. So everything gets cleaned up. The temple now is no longer a marketplace for crude business to rip people off in the house of God. He comes back three years later and somehow, according to human nature, those marketplace businessmen decided, you know, it's been a while since Jesus turned over tables. Maybe we should just try to get our business Back into the temple, and they moved their table back in, and three years later, before Jesus died on the cross, he came through and said, again, get out of here. You've made this a den of thieves. My Father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. It's to be about prayer. It's for my Father. Don't rip people off, and it's for all nations. There should not be racism or discrimination here. You hear that? Jesus did it twice. The nature of our lives is to go from God cleaned the temple, the church, Emmaus, my life, then to let those things come back in. And my question for us this morning that I have to ask, if Jesus was to visit Emmaus and overlook Emmaus, and I believe he does visit it every week, but if it was the physical personification, if it was Jesus walking in, what would, would he pull, what would he say to the elders, pull us aside and say, guys, come here. How scary would that be? <laughs> Yes, Lord. <laughs> and 
and just say, you, you got to get rid of that. Well, I mean, I, I don't believe at this point, as far as I know, there's anything. But I'm also saying, I'm not going to be so proud to say there isn't anything. God, you know. But then, I ask, then, then that question comes to bear on my own life. Have there been times when Jesus came in to clean house and he said, you know, that's a distraction. We're not talking about just inherent evil. That's just, that's distracting. You're spending too much time on social media. You're watching too much Netflix. You're too busy at work. You are preoccupied with other things. You've allowed the sacred temple of your soul to be choked out. And guess what? Your job isn't going to matter that much in heaven if you missed your time with God because you gave yourself to making money. Sports leagues, the things that you do with your, all fine things, but if they are money changer tables and animal selling inside the sacred temple that, that you say, well, I don't have time. The minute you say, I don't have time, I say, time for what? You get 24 hours like everybody else, and we have to manage and guard our time severely, guard the temple. And if Jesus at one time maybe cleared your life out, he might be calling you to be a spiritual minimalist again. Don't clutter your life. Jesus doesn't like it when you do that. If it's interfering with the sacred, the centeredness of your life, hey, it's okay to not be one of those people that's proud to be busy. I don't know why we're so proud to be busy. There's no one in the Bible that says that's a virtue. If anything, it says it's a vice. You're getting choked out. And Jesus would say, let's come back to a place of centeredness. Let's come back to a place of, of your first love again. Resetting our vision as a church community. We're called to be a house of prayer. We're called to be a community that cares for each other. And we're also called to be a community that goes into the neighborhoods we live in, the workplace and our city, actively looking for ways to do good in our city by what we say and what we do. That's the mission and vision of Emmaus. We exist to please Jesus by coming together in prayer. We exist to please Jesus by caring for one another as a body. And we exist to please Jesus by going to the world wherever he sends us to do good in it. And there's an opportunity for us this next month to, I believe, do some good. As you may or may not know, the month of February is Black History Month. Um, and uh, to stand in solidarity with the black community uh, for a month, it shouldn't be just a month. Black history is American history, but because if you went through college history, you know it's not in the history books. The black community, black people have done a lot to build America, but they get this much in the history books. We wouldn't need a whole month if we had them fairly implemented the story of America as a story of many races the native peoples of this land who we harmed when we came here. The black community who we enslaved and oppressed. And so, so this is a month where we can say, despite any guilt we might feel as white Americans, Caucasian Americans, that we can say we're standing in solidarity with the black community and we want to listen to your pain and understand the history that you're now celebrating this month. Black History Month is not just for black people. It's for all people. It's for those of us who stand with these our brothers and sisters. And so um, 
I'm going to invite you to a couple of things. February 3rd, we couldn't all fit here, but um, those of you who would want, want to go to this, this is a dynamic thing. Tom Butalit and I went last month to it and really li- liked it. It lit my heart on fire for racial justice and equality. Um, uh, it's called Barbershop Rap Sessions. It's right here in Cary. The first Saturday of every month, I believe it's at 9 or 10 o'clock. I'll confirm that and put the details on the city. It's at Headliners Barbershop right here in Cary. And it is an opportunity for the Cary police, local community leaders. I was like one of the only leaders representing the church there that week. And a, and a brother who's going to come visit us next month named True, who is working towards racial reconciliation, specifically after Ferguson between the police and uh, the black community. And for four years strong, they've been going, talking about some of the most difficult issues uh, between the races. And so if you're someone who has huge opinions. I know we're all opinionated in some degree. Um, this would be a great place for you to go because they're not afraid of your topic. They're not afraid of, of your opinion. And it's a place for us to learn to listen to one another. So I'm going to invite you to that. I'm also going to invite you to an event on February 24th. You probably would never typically go to this, but I'm going to ask you to consider it. February 24th, it's a Saturday from 2 to 6 p.m. It's an event, uh, and it's called The Future of Black History. And uh, the chief of police from um, Baltimore, Maryland, is coming down to be the keynote speaker, um, and, he, and he, along with many leaders, are going to be talking on the subject of the future of black history from a spiritual, political, and historical perspective, um, so I would just recommend that you do that um, as a way, just at least in this next month, to create awareness uh, for us as a community to, to do good and justice in the world that we live in.